start. We are in Genesis chapter 11, which is a really interesting story. Um, so I, I want to I kind of recap just, just a little bit to get us caught up and to help us see kind of the bigger picture. Um, Drew, at the very beginning of this, of this semester, we started talking about Genesis, and <clears throat> he reminded us that, you know, Genesis was written to a specific group of people for a specific purpose, right? That's every book in the Bible. And the purpose of the people is Israel, and the purpose is to help them understand their covenant with God and to help to see their, the history of their, their covenant that God established with them. And so really, the book can, can be separated into two halves. The first half would be chapter 1 through 11, and then the second half would be 12 through the end of the, end of the book, chapter 50, right? So, so we are coming to the end of the first major section, this first half. And in, in a lot of ways, like it's been, it's been somewhat of a race to get to chapter 12. From Genesis 1 to chapter, to, to, through chapter 11, it's been somewhat scanning thousands of years. In fact, we believe it's roughly... 4,000 years from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, okay? And for, so, think about this. Put this in the context of the Bible. Um, it's, it's roughly 4,000 from Genesis 1 to 11, and then roughly um, 2,000 from Genesis 12 to Matthew 1, and then roughly 2,000 from Matthew 1 to today. So, you think about it, there's about from, let's say, Adam and Eve to, to Genesis 11 is about 4,000 years, and from Abraham to us is about 4,000 years. So, that, so we're talking about a lot of history that, that takes place in the first 11 chapters. How many pages is that in your Bible? How many pages? Okay. That's a lot of history that's being skipped. And so, so it, it, should, it should catch your eye to go, okay, what are the details that are being described here? If they're if there's covering thousands of years of history, why these stories? Why these names? Why these details? Th- those are the kinds of things that you should be asking yourself, especially when you're trying to understand what's going on. And so we come to chapter 11, this really weird kind of story that seems disjointed or even out of place, but I think has some pretty interesting um, implications for us in terms of what God is trying to communicate to His people here. So, I am going to read chapter 11, just 1 through 9. We're going to spend, our, I'm going to spend all of my time just in these first nine verses just to kind of unpack this story. So, so let me do that. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, they, had, and they had brick for stone and bitumen, or, or tar, some translations, for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its, tops, with its top uh, in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city, in the tower, uh, which his children of which the children of man had built, 
And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, and from, them, from there over the face of, the, of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was now called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What a weird story. Um, so let me just recap. So, so here's, here's what the people do, and here's what they say. So they migrate to the east, into one area. Um, they say they want to build three things, a city, a tower, with its top in, into the heavens. Now, um, in the Bible, whenever it refers to the heavens, it's not, think, it's not talking about, um, not always talking about heaven, when we think of heaven. It's often just referring to the skies. Okay? Um, so, with its top in the heavens. And then the third thing is a name for themselves. And then we also know that they don't want to be dispersed. Okay, that's something they don't want. So, here's what the Lord does, and here's what He says. Um, he, he comes down to see what they're doing. They're building this city and this tower, and He observes these three things, that, that they're unified in one language, that, that this is only the beginning, that nothing they propose will be impossible for them from, because of this, and that their uniting efforts um, needs to be stopped. That seems to be evident. And so he confuses our language and disperses them in the earth. So the million dollar question is, what is the offense? Like, why is God so offended here? What did, what did they do um, to deserve this? What was so bad about this? Now, again, when we think about 1 through 11 and the specific stories that are being highlighted uh, it's it's really it's really easy to pick up on the fact that God at the beginning God is creator and sustainer everything He makes is good He makes man in, is in His image to to represent Him to uh, stay in relationship with Him to partner with Him to accomplish the things that God wants to accomplish for His purposes and so all of this is good okay and then we get to chapter three we get three chapters in and and God gives Adam and Eve one command, and they break that one command. And this, and this, this pattern of sin is introduced. So sin is introduced in chapter 3. And, and so when they disobey, God brings judgment, and it seems pretty straightforward. They disobeyed, God brought judgment. Um, in, in chapter 4, it goes from, in chapter 3, sin being introduced to chapter 4, Sin is now destroying families. It's, it, it goes to murder, right? So Cain's response to God not being pleased with his offering is to murder his brother. And this thing gets out of hand quick, right? So God makes a judgment, and God um, sends him off. But, he, but he, you know, he sends him off with a mark. The judgment seems to be given, and it's straightforward. He, he committed this crime. God gives judgment straightforward. And then we get to chapter 6, and, and specifically in verse 5, it, God observes that humans were wicked and that every intention of their heart and thought was evil continually, it says. 
So God casts judgment, the flood, and it seems pretty straightforward. But here in this, in this chapter, we, 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 there's something maybe that we're missing because of the, the sin, doesn't, the offense doesn't seem to be as straightforward as, as the others. And so we're left kind of asking this question, so, okay, God, what, what was the offense? Why the punishment? So we have to remember a couple things about, about all of the Bible, but specifically Genesis, that, that whenever we're trying to understand what the Bible means, we need to, we need to start where the, where the author and his intent. So we talk about this as, in terms of author's intended meaning. So we need to know what the author intended, not, not what we want it to say, but we need to know what did, what did the author mean and who were they writing to and what was the purpose the second thing we, need, we realize when we do this is that, again, the author's writing to Israel. And we, we talked about this the very first couple weeks. The Israel in this setting is a high-context society, which means that the references don't need to be explained. It's just like if, if I mention a meme to you, my, my mom would probably have no idea what a meme is. But I say meme, and you guys all get it. But if I'm at, at her house, i got to explain a meme. I don't even know how to do that, actually. I don't, I'd have to show her. That's probably how I'd have to do it. But you guys, do, I don't have to explain it to you. You get it. You're proficient with it. Um, so high-context society is there, there's an understood meaning. There's an understood explanation. So the author doesn't have to explain everything he's doing because they all, they all get it. Which means whenever, whenever something is unclear in Scripture, especially in Genesis, it's, it's one of two reasons. Either they all get it, and they didn't need, the author didn't need to explain it, so therefore we have to do the work to try to figure out what they understood that we don't. Or, the author purposely leaves out details. And actually we see this a little bit in, in Genesis 4. Because we, the author never explains why God isn't pleased with Cain's offering. And I think on purpose... Because, because the point of the story isn't why he was not pleased with, the, with Cain's offering. The point of the story is how Cain responded to God not being pleased with his, with his offering because of the dialogue that takes place. So, so sometimes the author will, authors in the Bible will, use, will purposely leave things a mystery for you to kind of lean in and you know, figure out why. But a lot of times it's, it's that, that there was an understood understanding. There's an under, understood explanation. And I think that is actually the case here, that, that, that this is understood. I think Israel, when they heard this story, they understood what was, what was happening. Like, they understood the meaning of this, the offense. So, I'm going to give you three options for this offense. Now, Drew and I have... Um, laughed about the fact that a year ago, well, six months ago, however, whenever we decided we were going to do Genesis, we were like, oh my gosh, we're going to, we'll probably not have enough to talk about. We'll probably have, we'll probably be done in an hour. Like, we'll, one of us will need to go, and we won't have anything else to say, and it's been quite the opposite. We have been blown away at, at how much there is here, but also how difficult, complex it is to try to recreate what was happening then and to understand what 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 is being communicated here, but uh, all all that to say, the three options I'm going to give you, one of which is brand new to me, is a new option, and so 
um, instead of saying, yeah, I've studied these things forever, I'm, I'm going to be honest and say the first two I'm pretty familiar with, the last one's pretty new, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I think, it, I think it, it offers some things that I haven't heard before that I think are really interesting and probably pretty accurate. But, um, but anyway, here's the three options. Okay, The first one, if you're taking notes, the first one is disobedience. Like the offense is disobedience. And it goes like this. In Genesis 1.28 and in Genesis 9.1, God says to Abraham, or sorry, we're not there yet. God says to Adam and Eve, and then he says to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Virtually the same kind of command. Fill the earth. So, so if they were commanded to fill the earth, to go spread and fill the earth, and they instead decided to go and congregate in one area and build a city and stay together, you know, strengthen numbers, then, then it's a direct disobedience to God's command in Genesis 1 and God's command to them in, in Genesis 9, 1. I've actually said those words. Like I, The point of this story is that they disobeyed. They were supposed to f- spread out and fill the earth and they just decided to just ignore that and come together. And, and so we've been saying from the beginning, and I believe this is true, that God created um, men and women to, to represent Him his character and his conduct as they stay in relationship with him and to, and to fill the earth with people who carry out his ways. I believe that's true. Um, and so I think that is maybe a good explanation to this. So this, this is possibly just a, a, a retelling of the same kind of disobedience that happened in, in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. And so maybe it's significant because here God staves Noah and his family and kind of starts over with them and then we're right back to square one. That could be an explanation, okay? Uh, Option one, disobedience. Option two is pride and ambition. Pride and ambition. So where where before, you know, in in maybe Genesis 4 and Genesis 6, you have these wicked... um, actions and you know murderous types of behavior toward each other um, this is now becoming this is this is humanity becoming full of themselves like elevating themselves to a higher status of a, a, a godlike status um, so this one again focuses on their ambition specifically with building this tower notice what it says building it to the heavens or or making a name for themselves um, actually, the, um, this that particular phrase, making a name for themselves, can also be understood as like building something that outlasts themselves, like building something that's that's not just about them, but it's about something that can stand forever about who they are, right? And so, making a name for ourselves—that's that, that's a a lot of a lot of people. When we when when I read this, that jumps out at me big time. Like that's a pretty key statement it's for someone to say. They want to make, make a name for themselves. And so pride and ambition certainly could play a part to this. But what's interesting is that um, there's some irony in what's, what's happening. Um, notice how the author, and I never really picked up on this, but the, the author like highlights the building materials. Of all the details, 
he highlights the, the building materials. Brick for stone. In other words, they use brick instead of stone. Which is stronger, brick or stone? Stone. <laughs> okay, go get a brick, and then go get a, a stone, granite, whatever. Take a hammer, and, and you'll find out pretty quick. Stone is way stronger than brick. And so I think, likewise, the, the ESV uses bitumen. I don't even know what that is. Um, other translations say tar instead of mortar. And so, same kind of concept. So, what, the, what one, com one commentator said is, um, like, in their prideful foolishness, they, they wanted to build something that would outlast themselves, but they used materials that were destined to decay. Um, that this is a, a, an, an irony happening here. So, this is an affront. This particular option is an affront to God in that humans are now um, not only capable of killing each other and, and all kinds of wicked things to each other, um, but now they're capable of like elevating themselves to this higher status, that, that they are God, that they don't need anyone else. Um, so that's the second option. The third option um, is hard to sum, sum up, but I will just I'll put it in terms of reducing God. You could also say the introduction into paganism. Um, but reducing God, I think, works. So this has everything to do with this specific, this specific tower. And the kind of tower that exists in the Babylonian era, area um, during the time of Abraham especially, during this time most likely that it's describing. And the, the tower is called, called a ziggurat. Okay? Z-I-G-G-U- R-A-T, ziggurat. And you can Google this and find images of ziggurats. They were built all over the, the Babylonian era. era, area, um, And so they're like this, this rectangle-based, pyramid-like structure that was built with different levels, um, oftentimes had some sort of housing on top, but most all of them had stairs that kind of went all the way up and, and so the, what this particular option is kind of describing is the intent of humans to build this tower uh, is, is, to, is to highlight the fact that they are wanting to build something that to help their God come down to them. So they, they talk about building these stairs so the gods can come down. Let's build it to the, to the heavens so the gods can have a place to come down and communicate with us. Which, hey, that sounds pretty cool. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with building a structure to just like, help God like, come talk to us and come down to us? Like God is so distant and hard to figure out. So let's build this thing. That way, He can come talk to us. He can come commune with us. And... And I don't know if you can catch a little bit of what I'm describing. If you know the God of the Bible, if you know the, how God describes Himself, you will begin to see how that could be a, a huge offense to Him. Why? Why would that be offensive to God? I'm asking to throw out some answers. Anybody? 
that's, yeah. Yeah, in other words, he's not this distant God that we can't ever figure out. Um, that, that has to, we have to like do this, do some dance to get it, him to, to pour out rain. No, he's with us. He knows, like that's how he presents himself is he's imminent. He's close. That's a good one. He, he's also, he doesn't need our help. That's, that's a big one. So, so what, well, what does that mean? Well, if, if this is the case, if this is what's happening, then Genesis 11 is describing um, not not just building this tower. It's, this isn't just to um, this isn't some form of idolatry. This is, if anything, like one commentator said, it's degrading the nature of God by portraying Him as having needs. And so, this idea of paganism, okay, which was which was prevalent in in the known world. Especially when Egypt or Israel would have received this, they would have been surrounded. Right, right. Most likely, Israel received this after they came out of Egypt at some point in the desert. Right? We don't know exactly <laughs> when, but they would have been very familiar with paganism. They would have been very familiar with it. And so, the heart of paganism isn't um, is is not in the perversity of ritual, but it's in the distortion and the twisting of the view of God. Right. And so, the offense here is that now they are seeking to help God out. Now they are seeking to manipulate God a little. Just build this thing so that we can get Him to come to us. Making themselves just... Bringing, it's, it's bringing God down. So, as the, as the second option, pride and ambition, would be elevating themselves up. This one would be just bringing God down to our level a little bit more. And, and that seems to be, if whichever option this is, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which, which it is, or if it's maybe some combination of all three. You know, um, This one is interesting to me because it seems to be so much different than the others. There seems to be something something different, and I and I can't help but wonder if if Genesis three, God is communicating something about the 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 pattern of sin. Genesis four, God is communicating how sin destroys families. Genesis six is communicating how widespread this exists amongst all people, and then Genesis eleven is maybe describing how how now it's turned to them to them. <laughs> us um, kind of changing our view of deity, making God more like us when he when we were made in his image. So which is it? I, I really I, like I said, I don't know for sure I'm not going to land anywhere s- specific. I think it could be a combination. Um, but what's so th- this I had a conversation with a couple of you before. There's a lot of things in this story that we don't understand, that aren't given. Again, why were they so afraid to be dispersed? Why, um, why, why was, well, what, the language, is this where all the different languages come? Um, is this how all the languages came? I'm sure. Just does, it doesn't necessarily tell us exactly why God, the, 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 the judgment that God gives here in confusing their language and, and kind of forcing their hand to spread out um, 
isn't as perfectly clear as other things. But what is clear is, is this offense. This something that they're doing is, is a, an offense to God, and therefore, God brings judgment. And so, so this is another key. We have to look back. Okay, what are the other times that God brought judgment? And what we see is that His judgment is always good and it's always right. Um, but there's always an element of grace and hope in His judgment. So in Genesis 3, um, He says, Do not eat of the tree. They eat of the tree. Then they hide from Him. He says, Why are you hiding? Then He gives the judgment okay, to each of them. But then He, I don't know if you caught this at the end of chapter 3, but then He makes covering for them. Like he, he, There's some grace in covering their nakedness. And instead of them dying right on the spot, he lets them live outside the, the garden and lets them have, have kids and live a long time. Okay, and then, so grace and hope. And then uh, with Cain and Abel, he, he gives his judgment to Cain and he marks him so that, so that no one will mess with him and he lets him live. He lets them go, like you think about it. The, the capital punishment in the rest of the Bible for murder is to be stoned, to be taken out. And he lets Cain live and lets him have kids. There's grace and there's hope. And then in Genesis 6 through, 6 through 9, there is the obvious judgment of the flood, but then he chooses this family to start over and he gives a promise of a rainbow, and so there's a promise to never flood the earth in the same way, and so there is grace and there's hope. But here in this story, there's no real explicit kind of grace and hope. And I, and I, I can't help but wonder if that was done intentionally for, for you to go and for the, the audience to go, okay, so what's he going to do? How is God going to give grace and hope out of this crazy situation. What's next? And that is actually what we're going to spend the next half talking about. So we're going to take a little break, and then Drew will get up and finish this out. All right. So I'm not actually going to like teach a whole other session tonight. Uh, I think that I will be short tonight. All, all I want to do... Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right, so that was Genesis 11. It's been a great night. Worship band, come on up. No. Um, so what we just closed out was uh, our second section of this book that we're going through. At the beginning, we broke this down into four pieces. And, and we said that the first few chapters dealt with creation, humanity, and the fall, basically setting a stage for us. And then from there on out, after the fall, we get to see through Cain and Abel, and through Lamech, and through the people at the time of Noah, we see this need for a covenant people, a people by which God will reveal himself and redeem the world back. And so we see this need for a covenant people that has come, and, and, and that gets highlighted again after God has kind of started over with Noah and his family and redone, gets highlighted again here in Genesis 11, that, that people still aren't getting it, that people are 
continuing to spiral further and further away from God's intent and His plan. And so what happens next week is we actually make the move into what will be the largest chunk of our narrative, and that is the establishment of a covenant people. God actually working to establish uh, what has been needed from the beginning, what we've been looking for and longing for. And so basically, I just want to take a few minutes to transition us into that. To, to kind of set that up as we, as we make the shift into that section there. But first, I want to take you to the very, very end of the story. Um, we've done this once or twice, and, and we'll probably do it more, because sometimes the beginning makes the most sense when you know the end. And so I want to take you to Revelation 7, um, and I want to read just a couple of verses to you from there. Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10. John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so at the very end of the Bible, you see uh, this coming together of all the different tribes and all the different languages coming together in worship, coming together with God, which is, which is the goal. That's what we're aiming for, where God and man are drawn back together as heaven and earth become one and God and humanity um, join back in this relationship. But you see this amazing thing of every tribe and tongue and language coming together to worship. And that's a beautiful and good thing. So the question is, how do we get from Babel to there? How do we go from multi-language chaos, which is the result of what's happening in Babel, to uh, multi-language worship in Revelation 7? What is it that moves the ball that far forward by the time we get to the end, from people dispersing because of their language to then everyone from all these languages coming back together in worship of God and of the Lamb, Jesus Himself. Um, this is the direction that the Bible and history is headed, and so getting our grips around where, where this comes from, how we get to that, well, this is, this is the start. It starts with the establishment of a covenant people, but if you've paid attention at all, then you know there's a really big question how are we going to get this? How are we going to establish? Who's going to rise to the occasion to create this kind of people that will enter into a covenant partnership with the one true God? Like who on earth, after 11 chapters, you ought to know that's a pretty big question. Who on earth is able to rise up to that level to be able to, to create a covenant people who can live in a right relationship with God and model what God is intending for the rest of the world and bring us all the way through to Revelation 7. Um, next chapter that we're in is what's going to start that for us. Genesis 12. And Genesis 12, if you want to understand the Bible, is a chapter that you got to know. It's one of the hinge texts in the Bible. One of the hinges that the whole narrative swings on is Genesis 12. And so in Genesis 12 next week, we're going to begin describing the establishment of this covenant people. But actually, the answer to that question unfolds before we even end chapter 11. 
before our chapter tonight is over, it begins to start playing out on, on a very small level. It unfolds with this one man and his family, this man named Terah. Genesis 11, verses 27 and 28. It says this, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is where the beginning of the story begins to unfold. And, and most of you, I'm sure, recognize the one name in there that's going to be really significant. Abram soon to be Abraham, but that's not the name that I want you to notice right now. I want you to notice the name of his hometown. Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, I want to show you a picture real quick. This is actually, Scott mentioned it and said you can Google it. You don't have to Google it. We'll show it to you right now. Do we have the TVs on? There we go. This right here is a ziggurat. Uh, this was discovered, I think they said, in the 1920s. Uh, built uh, 4,000 years ago, 2100 B.C. Like I said, discovered the 1920s. Now, it's been actually kind of like the foundation was there and, and bits and pieces of it, but it was kind of restored a little bit. Uh, and it, it's missing up on top of the third level. As Scott said, there'd be housing. A lot of times it was the housing for the gods. It was a temple that would sit up on the top of that. So it doesn't have the temple sitting up. There were some blue brick stones in the area that they believe were part of the decorative temple that sat on top of this. Um, uh, and it sat there uh, for a long time undiscovered under this towel. And then they found it and then they kind of rebuilt it up. It's received a little damage. This is in, this is in Iraq. And during the Persian Gulf War... Saddam Hussein, one of his kind of strategies for protecting some of his jet, like his air, like, yeah, jet fighter planes or whatever, was to park them next to this. Going, if we park them next to this, maybe no one will bomb them because they don't want to destroy history. But people bombed them anyway. So, um, it, and, and it, it suffered a little bit of damage from that. But this is from Tour 100. So, here's the thing. This is the ziggurat that, that some people think, that a lot of people actually think, um, that Tower of Babel is not this one particularly, but, but those ziggurats that were kind of um, frequent in this area. But do you know what this particular one is called? The Ziggurat of Ur, because that's where it's found. Built in 2100 BC, Abraham living in about 2010, 2020. So this is his hometown. This is his ziggurat. This is where he grows up. It was built by a king there, um, King Ur-Namu, and it was, well, what's a cool name, and built for the moon goddess Nana, which was considered the divine patron of the city. So the moon goddess was Nana, was the god of this city, was the patron that they worshipped. Um, and Mesopotamia, this region here uh, of Ur, where Abraham is from, um, had a number of these all over. They were, they were all over that region, about 500 miles east of uh, like Jerusalem. So if you go to Jerusalem and you take about 500 miles east across the desert, then you come to Mesopotamia, where all of these things are. Um, now I want to read to you another verse real quick. Joshua 24, 15. It's actually a fairly famous verse, but there's a line in there that a lot of people don't pay attention to. 
This is Joshua's like last charge to his people before he dies. Like they're, they've gone in, they've taken the promised land, all right? And Joshua's giving his final charge to the people saying, hey, stick with God, stay with your commitment to God. And he says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now rewind that. Choose this day whom you will serve. And the first option, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river. Uh, the region beyond the river. The river is the Euphrates. The region beyond it is Mesopotamia. So the fathers that he's talking about is Terah and his family. And, and that means probably actually uh, Abram as well. More than likely Abram. So um, the common understanding is God goes and he's looking to establish this covenant people. And so he goes and finds a really good guy named Abraham or Abram at the time. And he, he wants him because this is a faithful man. This is a dedicated man. This is the man through whom I'm going to start my people. But from everything I can tell as I look at it, Abram's actually making his way up that ziggurat like once a month to offer sacrifices to the moon goddess there. But he's not. This incredibly great, you know, Sunday school going uh, guy and, and, and God goes and, and finds him for that reason. No, from what we can tell, he's not an amazing righteous man pursuing God when God goes to call him. He's more than likely a pagan idol worshiper. And so in answer to the question, who will rise to the occasion to establish this covenant people? The answer is no one. No one will rise to the occasion. No one can rise to the occasion. God rises to the occasion. God himself, outside of the goodness of human beings, outside of whether or not someone is righteous enough, outside of whether someone is capable of this, God creates this covenant people through his own goodness, by his own grace, and for his own purposes. So this story is actually the opposite of, we told you, actually it, it connects with what Scott just said, a, a a, a tower that is meant to go up and help the gods come their way, uh, make their way down, which makes sense for this part of the world because this part of the world is the same part where we told you that creation narrative about creating man. The reason the gods created man in Mesopotamian culture is to help them do all the things that they didn't want to do, to serve them, to provide food for them. And we see actually in Genesis 11 and 12 and the way God goes about establishing his people, everything opposite. A God who does not need human beings for help, but invites them in anyway. Doesn't need Abram, doesn't, doesn't need it. There's no one who's able to do that, and yet God invites him into his plan anyway. I want to have the band actually come up, and you guys can go up and, and, and kind of start getting ready while I just share a couple other thoughts real quick. Um... What, what unfolds in the, in the transition from 11 to 12 as God establishes the covenant people is actually a theme that makes its way all throughout Scripture. That God is in control and God is sovereign and God may not need, but He graciously invites us in that He comes to undeserving people and invites them into the story. This is my favorite verse in the last couple years to describe what grace is. Um, we were working uh, with my kids going over this verse uh, at the dinner table. It's written above our dinner table right now, Romans 5, 8. Um, 
But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Um, and so we've been working through that with our kids, explaining this. Um, Hudson, who's thinking about getting baptized, my, my son. Hudson, God didn't come to save you. God didn't send Jesus to save you because you were awesome. He didn't wait to see who was good enough and then come after them. He came while you were still sinning. He loved you enough that even in that, he comes to you. Um, Christianity sometimes gets this reputation of a, of a group of people who think that they're better than everybody else, who think that they're more moral or more um, have it together. That's actually the opposite biblically of what Christianity is. Christianity is not a religion for people who think they're better than themselves. Christianity is for people who know for a fact that they're not. Who know for a fact that they don't have anything to bring to the table and yet believe in a God who is willing to graciously reach down to us anyway. A God who loves us enough to invite us into those things. Um, I'll skip this story for now. I'll tell it to you later. Uh, but, but let me say this. If, if for whatever reason you find yourself, maybe, maybe uh, I don't know the makeup everybody in, of everyone in here, but uh, if you're one of those people who's, who's not a Christian, who doesn't even know what you think about that, who the Tower of Babel is just one of many weird stories to you that you're not sure about. Um, but one of the weirdest things uh, about the whole Christianity thing is this whole thinking that you're so good and so awesome. I just want you to know that's not real Christianity. Um, and, and if you think for any reason that like one of the things that's holding you back is, is you can't clean yourself up enough, um, you're in good company because that's actually what you have to know about yourself before you can become, uh, before you can give your life to Jesus, that I can't clean myself up enough. I trust him to do that in me. And, 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 I, I, and I trust that he loves me in those things. And, and if you are a Christian who, who continually struggles with whether or not you can come and talk to God because, you know, I really screwed up last night. I did some things I'm not proud of. Or, or, or wonders if you have the ability to pray or wonders if he cares about you or loves you um, when you mess up. It's important for you to remember this, that he loved you far before you were trying, before you were even trying, before you even cared. Um, loved you enough to send his son to die for you. Doesn't need you, but loves you enough to invite you in anyway, invite you to be a part of the story. And so what makes you think that in your failure, he's, he would stop loving you now? What makes you think that when you uh, screw up, that he doesn't want anything else to do with you anymore? Again, that's, that's just not the story that we, that, we t- that we know. That's not the story that we tell. That's not the story that we read. Um, we're about to have a chance to sing to a God who, who invites broken people in to be a part of his covenant people, who establishes the people himself and then says, I want you to be a part of this family with me. And, and so I want us to, to kind of prepare ourselves and then we will uh, we'll sing a little bit together about this. So let me pray and then we'll begin. Dear God, I hope and pray that you make sense of my words tonight. And I thank you for your grace. I thank you that when the world didn't have anybody worthy of making this thing work, that you made it work anyway. And I, I thank you that uh, even though I am continually a person who is not worthy of being a part of your family, of your people, that... Uh, 
Do you love me enough to, to, to invite me into that? Um, God, would you please make that real to us in this room tonight? Help us to understand the good news of the gospel. Help us to understand the good news um, about a God who loves us enough uh, to send his son to die for us while we were still sinners. I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen.